1: Welcome back, everybody, to this week's RevOps Podcast. I'm Alistair Wilcox, CSRO here at Revenue IO. I am happy to welcome back Camille Rexin, General Manager of Forty Two Agency, with us here today. Camille, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me again. Yes, absolutely. You know, we we had such a fun conversation last time around how sales is overtooled, how we would build the ideal tech stack, but we left off on on a point that I think is really interesting. And that is around intent data, attribution data, and you know, how good is it? And when we think about that data, I think there's a lot, especially in marketing, a lot of people marketing, well, that's just my existence. That's, I guess, essential. That's why we exist in this organization. Is it necessary? Like, if it's not that good, what should we be doing? So
2: to me, there's a spectrum from cold outbound to hot inbound. And the way intent data is sold, it's sold as something that's closer to the hot inbound, when in fact, it's more cold outbound. So I think with intent data, it's connected in a black box manner. Most of the time they talk about signals and this and that, and like, there's no clear understanding of how this data is being actually being captured. Right. It's a couple level. If somebody's browsing a G2 listing, does that active mean that they're actively in a purchasing cycle? I don't think so. Uh I I push back on that. And I push back on that because we have used G2 intent data, we've used captured data. And the incremental results of that were not significant. In some cases, it was negative. So we actually got worse results when using intent data versus like native first party targeting data or third party targeting data. And it's it's like one of those things where it sounds great in theory because if you can tell at the right time at the right moment you could reach out to somebody and say, "Hey, I know you're looking for this thing. Here's a solution. I can sell it to you." It sounds great in theory, but it, there's just so many black box fuzziness around it because it's account level. You don't know who it is. It might, and like, how good is the data actually being captured? Like a lot of it relies on cookies and IP, or like content whatever like they own a bunch of websites and they opt in some stuff like but how good is that not actually data coming through i i'm not i'm not convinced so how do we fix it then we stop over promising <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> i think intent data combined with your first party data is can be interesting because if you have an open opportunity for company x and then you can also say oh they're also showing some degree of intent on some third party platform, that could be interesting, but I think it's a game of probabilities. It's not absolute. So like it's might increase your five percent probability that they might engage with the same conversation or increase their sales velocity or something, but it's not an absolute in the sense that they are definitely gonna close. Yeah. And I think the vendors right now in the intent data space, and I wanna give my love to Tukan who's in the intent data space, he's a good friend of mine. I don't hate you. I, we've had this conversation many times. <laughs> don't yell at me. But they need to use Understand, like, I think the the way it's framed and positioned is what I have an issue with. And then also like intended as not be all end all. I would encourage people to look at it with a degree of skepticism and really understand like
1: what is the value it's driving versus taking somebody's word for it. I don't know that I necessarily disagree, but in defense of all of the marketers and rev people out there that are using this. There's a lot of pressure on them to provide some form of engagement scoring. SDR teams, ISR teams in particular are very reliant upon this for the initial engagement to where they need to go. They're fairly volume orientated and it's, it's at least giving them a partial leg up. Like your G2 example of somebody went in and looked at G2 things, so you pounce on them. Yeah. They probably aren't ready to speak to you as a vendor, but is it better to just leave them unengaged? I think if you were to, and this is just like my hypothesis,
2: if you were to get an ICP list from ZoomInfo and push that to a very well-tailored sequence, I think you would get better results for it. Mm-hmm. And my guess is that person showing intent on G2 is probably already on your ICP list. Yeah. So instead of pousing on them, wanna, like treat them as a cold outbound so yeah you still need to frame your problem you still need to frame your solution and if you were to get a zoom in full list and say these people fall into my icp i'm going to tailor my outreach to these folks you would probably get the same or not if not better results than like a g2 whatever and back to the engagement thing i think we need to define what engagement actually is and what it means and how it drives business like is engagement that they saw an ad yeah i don't i don't know Is that really meaningful engagement or is it an engagement that they came to the website and they looked at a couple of pages and now they're actively
1: researching something? I think where you're going on this is, look, buying is, we all know is non-linear, but it's multi-threaded. Yeah. Right. It's multi-channel. Yeah. And again, that's most people saying, we go, yes, we know that. But it's important to understand and map the buyer journey and the tasks associated with that. So when somebody goes and looks at an asset, a digital asset somewhere, that doesn't actually always mean the first reaction is to pounce on them with a phone call, Yeah. right? I, yeah, I know everyone's knee jerk to it, but if they're just looking to be educated, you're better served to actually support them, follow up with them. If you know who they are, yeah. send them supporting asset and actually directly support yeah. 100%. this hundred stage. Of what they're doing, yep. and then ask them. And if you need more information, here's how you go get it. Here's a link, or you could book a meeting with me. Yeah, no bother. You. That's actually helping me now. Or if I'm in a buying committee and I've come in mid stage, right? Because I'm I'm later on in the resourcing decision. I may need differing information, and I don't need to be sold to. I might need very quantifiable, comparable information or third party validation. That's when you know. Analyst reports on other things. Yep. actually makes sense. So I think it's sequencing the task with the buyer journey and then applying predictive models around the marketing set of when and how and where to engage. Yeah, because I, I I'm actually you know with you in the sense that intent on its own isn't it, but when I can take yep. it with intent, with transactional information, with behavioral information. And I can look at it and say in a cross sell thing, all right now I can better predict it counts with this with a product of mine, and a propensity score of A are seventy five percent more likely to buy product Y. Yep, and then it's just a question of taking that and feeding it into an engagement platform to allow the reps to know yep. when to where H. And then I think we
2: over-index on third-party intent, and we under-index on first-party intent. Yeah. So if somebody's coming in and downloading a product sheet around why X is better than like your product, blah blah blah, yeah, treat that as first-party intent because then you know that this person from this company is actually researching this category, and we are one of the you're one of the vendors in their consideration set. Third-party intent is too wide of a net for me to be like on its own. We're going to treat that. But we under leverage first party intent, and oftentimes we don't even pay attention to those signals. Yeah, And we'll over index on third party intent, saying, oh, there are humans listing on Captera, I should go palsing them while they're on your website and they're downloading the product sheet. That's a higher, that's a more closer intent to purchase than a third party intent, to me at least. Right.
1: So, yeah, you know, I think I think we've hammered home the intent piece and the you know, how to work it. <laughs> for the team again, like when we think of the fit transactional intent, behavioral, you know, those are the pieces, but it's how we then present the data, right? We have to get that back into something, right? We're going to make it work in a sequence. We have to make it work in terms of the motion within there. We can't just push it to Salesforce. That's a piece of it or a CRM system. It, it's creating the action and the speed off of that action appropriately across marketing teams. SDR, ISR yep. team, across sales teams and customer success teams. Now, the go-to answer for that for a long time has been, ah, we now need to buy account-based marketing technologies. We need account-based X approaches. And off we go. But that's a lot of money. Yeah. A big cost in there, a lot of big vendors. And you know, it's a big strategic decision, is it? Does it have to cost a fortune, Camille, to get that done? Like, it, it definitely works, but you know, do you need a huge budget? What about the alignment? Like, how can we just make it a little bit simpler than yet again applying more, more, more to to the problem of what's ultimately getting down to engagement? Thoughts? Ooh, lots of thoughts, but I'm going to try and not go off a tangent. I
2: think fundamentally, ABM, ABX, ABS is aligning marketing a sales team. And before you buy a tool, you have to make sure the teams are aligned and they're set on the KPIs and they're working together. And I like to talk about the idea of a pod. So you create pods instead of, and then you give them the same goal that you have these set of accounts. Yeah. And then the second piece is the data piece. You have to, when you actually build an ABM list, do you actually have an ABM list or do you have a wish list? Like, are those accounts actually realistically something you can close in the next quarter, two quarters? Are they actually a good fit? Are they demographically, technographically? Are they? Do you have the right persons contacting for? Do you know who the buyers are? Do you have information on like what are their priorities for the next? Have we done the research on it? Yeah, the tools. Like, I I have talked to a lot of companies where they say, oh, we're gonna do ABM. We're just gonna buy some tool and we're gonna call it today. And I personally don't feel like that solves the problem. I personally don't feel like slapping somebody's logo on a display ad is gonna make them more likely to buy something and I don't call an E. P. So that's just my really <laughs> brief take on that is, but you have to start with the fundamentals of like, what are we trying to achieve? What are the KPIs? Or we agreed on the same targets. I'm going after the right set of accounts. So there's a lot of like low tech stuff you can do. Uh, Dave Riccardi, he used to run ABM at Visible. Uh, they like printed out physical magazines for all the target accounts. You can do that. You can do events. You can do out of home. We have done billboards in front of people's offices. That can be effective. We have done microwave ads. That can be effective. Display ads
1: and intent data, and just like feeding them to a platform. I don't think that works still. That well. So it's interesting. Is you're really talking about ABM that is uh, both using the yesterday approach with the modern approach, right? And we've we've gone to the extremes of everything digital because we can do it as such rate and reach, but that's the inundation. We're actually going back towards the hey, I need a little bit more of the physical and other components with it, right? Uh, A a great analogy I love is why such a resurgence of Polaroids, right? Like in in the world of photography, to technology that we've come a long way from, and yet it's back on the rise. People are like wanting Polaroids again, like it's a thing. Uh, and certainly, even for my children who are now teenagers, you know, they it's they all the thing amongst the friends. And uh, why is really interesting from the psychology of it all when when you look into it, because they've grown up in an era of ubiquitous technology. Customers now, most buyers, right, are moving into they've seen twenty years of ubiquitous digital marketing and things like that. So they become it's just, it's just it's a noise to them. But like a Polaroid to a teenager today, the Polaroid is unique. It's a one off. It's a thing. That's it. Like you take it, it's done. There's no doing anything more with it. So it's actually worth more to them than the best picture I can get from said mobile device these days. And so you're seeing this this resurgence coming back into the play of, you know, the the rarity and scarcity coupled with the personalization. And when I think of account based marketing, how do we make that personalization of rarity and scarcity tie back into that process without spending a fortune? Yeah. And digital is becoming more and more crowded. People
2: are tuning out of online ads, people are blocking ads. So I think it's people value experiences more than ads sold to them. And fundamentally, you can run ads on LinkedIn and they're displayed like on their audio network and you can still reach a wider... And the other thing in context of the intent data, ABM, everything, if you are selling out of North America, a lot of these technologies are not so effective because there's data regulations and compliance issues and they don't have coverage. That's right. So that's like another consideration is like a lot of these more tech tools that we see these days are very, very focused on the North American market, but...
1: We were working with the client that was selling into Europe and a lot of these things were like kind of not possible. Absolutely. And it continues to evolve as well, right? So so now I, I don't want to sound like I'm harping on ABM because I want to start, where we started here was if we all agree it's actually, it it, it has effectiveness, right? It it definitely does. But we're also saying that it just, there's a lot of value leakage and there's a lot of the exceptional costs spent on these things now. And if you were to give kind of advice around three basic things, of how to reduce that. At some point, somebody's probably gonna need a technology associated with it, especially if they're an enterprise company. You're gonna need one of the ABM vendors most likely to really make it work just due to the volume of personas they have to deal with, the volume of content they have, and all of those things, It's it helps in that way. But so I hear you say, be cautious on the tool. You then said, Yo, be mindful of the organization itself. And I think it's a really interesting vantage point I just, I just want to double click on it a little bit because when I think of a way to structure the organization, you you said people should think about pods. And I've heard a pod structure once before. Back when I was at Gardner, the Gardner sales leadership organization in, in research and advisory had a wonderful case study put together with a company called Smart Technologies. Yeah. And Smart Technologies took a very pioneering approach to its organizational structure based on pods. And what they did was, they went and said, all right, I'm going to have pods in countries. And then these pods are organized by commercial expertise. So I have a pod associated with helping customers learn. I have a pod associated with customers buying. I have a pod associated with helping them install our products. We have a pod associated with adoption and a pod with support. And the pods consist of Marketing, sales, and CS functions together. I loved it. We looked at it. Brent Dandamson was another person looked at it very heavily and did a lot of research around that. And is just a brilliant way of thinking about this pod-based design of an organization. Instead of marketing driving the ABM and then sales picking it up, it's actually we well, now think of ABM across the revenue cycle all the way, including customer success. Actually, you think bigger. I would suggest. Yep. If you can organize our pods, because now marketing actually tell you different propensity and other models, which are really helpful for cross-sell, upsell, downstream. But they're thinking all the way through the life cycle. And RevOps teams can help do that. As opposed to what we often do is well, how do I get a customer? Expand, upsell, cross-sell, keep them. All of these things happen. So so pods organized by buying stage and process stage is a really interesting way to go. And what you often will find is you actually need less labor to do it. Yep. You can actually optimize your footprint. And if you do it really right, you get a better buyer experience off of it as well. So is that what you were thinking when you were saying the pod structure as well? Is that- Yes. Uh, I picked it up. I think it was Spotify
2: or somebody. They do product development in pods. So they have activation pods, Pods for playlists, part for recommendation. Because it's a it goes back to the whole cross-department, cross-functional efforts. Like ABM is not owned by sales or marketing or CS. It's like across everything. It's a company strategy on some some level because it's like you kind of structure your company fundamentally to support ABL. It's not like sales can do their own thing, marketing can do their own thing, and then like you call it ABM. So I kind of borrowed that analogy of pods from how Spotify does product dev. And it's so effective because then you reduce the communication inertia
1: and communication debt between teams or organizational because that's a huge part of it. Yeah. I, I, I love Spotify's approach as well. And, you know, yeah, the pod-based thing, I think, is, is really fantastic of it. And, and when you get this right, here's the benefits so our audience understands. When we think of account-based approaches... That optimize via pods, that focus on the engagement aspects in a demonstrable way, personalized by role, but don't worry about, I'll call it cutesy personalization. Yeah. Right? Locos and other add on stuff like that. It is really big implications, right? So, you know, I remember there was a Gartner study fairly recently that came out with some results on it. And, you know, it was six out of 10 organizations that undertook that approach have a meaningful pipeline lift, and 41% saw an increase in deal size and win rate. And I don't know of a company right now where people are relentlessly focused on sales productivity. And the other top priority is how to decrease my cost of sale and improve the capital efficiency of my revenue organization and the cost efficiency of my revenue organization. Who wouldn't want a 6 out of 10 chance to increase pipeline lift? And who wouldn't want a forty-one percent increase in deal size and win rate? Yeah, yeah, I think you nailed it. Yeah, Camille, it has been a pleasure having you. I think we could probably get into even more depth with some analogies and other companies of what's going on. The Spotify stories. Thank you for sharing that. Your views on the intent data and and really the importance of tying that together with you know the transaction data, the behavioral data, the you know providing proactive insights on that. It's been wonderful to have you discuss that with us here today. What's your uh, uh, final piece of advice for our audience? Don't overcomplicate (laughs) it. Well said, (laughs) couldn't agree more. We look forward to seeing you again in the future. Thanks for joining us. Please don't forget to like and subscribe and call us in with your future questions as well. You can reach us at 323-540-4777. That's 323 540 4, 4, 4, 7, 7. And Howard and I will do our best to answer those as they come along. <music>